Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the LSE for tonight's event. My name is Minou Shafiq. I'm the director of the London School of Economics and Political Science, and it is my pleasure to welcome you here tonight. And it's a great honor for me to welcome Professor Thomas Piketty to the LSE today. As I'm sure you're aware, Professor Piketty is well-known uh, and famous, arguably one of the most famous economists around these days, for his work on wealth and income inequality. But here, he's more well-known for, for being an LSE alumnus who uh, completed his PhD at the LSE at the ripe age of 22. Thank <sighs> <laughs> you. A professor at the Ecole des Hautes Études de Sciences Sociales in Paris and at the Paris School of Economics, and formerly a centennial professor here at LSE at the International Inequalities Institute. He's the author of huge numbers of articles published in top journals and a dozen books, and has produced major historical and theoretical work on the interplay between economic development the distribution of income and wealth, and political conflict. And, has, and in particular, he's the initiator of a vast new literature on the long-run evolution of top income shares in national income, now available globally in the World Inequality Database. He's also the author of the international bestseller, Capital in the 21st Century, and his latest book, Capital and Ideology, is, uh, it will be the topic of his talk today. It is an equally ambitious and radical vision of what he refers to as the transcendence of capitalism. Just a few uh, administrative notes. The event today uh, is hosted by the LSE International Inequalities Institute as part of the research theme on wealth elites and tax justice led by the III director, Professor Mike Savage. And this event forms part of the Shape the World series running up to our LSE Festival, which will take place from the 2nd to the 7th of March, which is free and open to all members of the public to explore how social science can make the world a better place. For those, uh, oh, I should say the full program for the LSE Festival is available online and booking will open on the 10th of February. For those Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSE Wealth. That is not the name of our endowment. Uh, and, and I'd ask you to please put your phones on silent for the event. This event will be recorded and av available on podcast. And as usual, after the lecture, I will uh, chair a session in which you will be asked, you'll be free to ask Professor Piketty questions. And with that, could you please join me in welcoming Professor Thomas Piketty back to the LSE. Thanks, thanks a lot for your warm welcome. Let, let me first uh, apologize for the fact that my uh, English is going to sound a lot like French. And, you know, I hope you, you can still understand what I have to say. I, I guess I didn't stay long enough at LSE and London to... <laughs> To improve my accent, but anyway, so um, you know, it's always great to be back here, and, and, and you know, especially now that I'm going to present this new um, uh, book to you uh, today, Capital and Ideology. So, uh, you know, in this talk, so this is the cover of the book. This has just been released. This is actually the first time, the first public event uh, where this book is being uh, uh, discussed in the English language or the 
book came out in, in France uh, last September. It came out in Spain, a couple of other countries, but this is the, really the first release in the English language. And so in this talk, I will present uh, some of the figures and tables gathered in my book. So Capital and Ideology is like Capital in the 21st century. It's a book uh, full of data. This is a, a book about the history of inequality regimes. So there are like 169 uh, figures and tables in the book and another 100 in the, uh, available online. Uh, what's new in this book as compared to the previous uh, uh, work, uh, to my previous book, is that I try to put uh, emphasis on uh, the what I call the history of ideology and the way inequality, different levels of inequality or equality have been justified uh, in different societies. And basically, my main point is that we, we need to take this uh, ideology seriously uh, because it's always much more sophisticated than just a way uh, by the elite of the different societies to, to uh, 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 you know, defend their position and to describe, you know, the, the, the social system as, as being, uh, you know, fair and acceptable to all. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, of course, there is always some hypocrisy in this uh, discourse and this justification, but there's always also some plausibility to, to, to these discourses and we need to take them seriously also if we want to study the conditions for uh, change and transformation. So, you know, this book, as compared to the previous one, is less Western-centered and also more political and focuses on the uh, fragilities and transformation of uh, uh, inequality ideologies. And one of the big messages, which, uh, you know, I think is a pretty optimistic message for the future is that in practice, uh, uh, you know, it's, uh, the, the inequality is not so much determined by uh, uh, just pure uh, deterministic uh, forces, either economic or technological or cultural forces, but rather can be transformed by changing uh, 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 political mobilization. And this has happened many times in the past. And, you know, I think this will uh, happen again in the future. I, I think this is a much better book than the previous one. Uh, so if you if you read only one, uh, please uh, read this one. Uh, uh, so let me, you know, this is a very long book. That's uh, one, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sorry about that. I think it's very readable, but it's, you know, it's it's a bit long. So I'm, I'm not going to tr try to present everything, but let me first go through a, a little tour through the contents of the book. So there are four parts to the book. Uh, 17 chapters. The part one is, you know, starts from uh, European societies of orders and ternary societies and the way they were transformed into uh, what I describe as ownership societies or proprietarian societies in the 19th century. So, in particular, in France after the French Revolution, but you have different trajectories uh, in, in Britain and Sweden and other European countries leading to to, uh, to a similar evolution to, to some extent. Uh, then, part two is about uh, slave and colonial societies and the way uh, uh, European uh, uh, colonial and, and proprietarian uh, powers, uh, in a way, you know, transform completely the condition of the transformation of uh, uh, old inequality regime and, and ternary societies into um, uh, modern uh, uh, proprietarian and post-proprietarian societies. So the, in particular, the case of India is, is, it plays a, a very important role in the story. I'm not going to talk much about it today, but the, the way uh, uh, you know, the, the British colonization process contributed to the rigidification of the, of the caste system and the boundaries between social categories that were not uh, always uh, so clear uh, uh, before 
the colonization process provides a very interesting example of an interaction between an ancient inequality system and, a, and, and the logic of colonization and, and the way uh, you know, post-independence India is trying to deal with with uh, uh, very deep inequalities coming from this uh, historical legacy is, uh, I think, uh, uh, very interesting also for, for the rest of the world. Uh, part three uh, is about the reduction of inequality in the 20th century and the way ownership societies entered into a deep crisis between 1914-1945, the, the social democratic societies that follow and how they achieved a certain level of equality in the post-war period and how they entered uh, into an era of crisis uh, starting around 1980. Communist and post-communist societies Play a big role in the in the in the overall story, and I will I will come later uh, uh, about this. Part four is about the uh, what I call here the dimensions of political conflict and really the evolution of uh, electoral coalition, and in particular how the sort of post-war uh, uh, social democratic electoral coalition sort of gradually uh, failed and gradually, uh, you know, the, the vote uh, in favor of social democratic parties broadly understood shifted from being the party of the workers and less educated social group to the party of the of the winners of the education uh, system and and I will argue that you know this, this contributes to uh, you know today's uh, uh, disillusionment with respect to the left and the general breakdown of the left versus right party system uh, with today you know the the, the tendency for a, a form of a, a nationalist and identity based uh, 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 politics that is uh, that is i think uh, you know very dangerous evolution in chapter 17 you know i try to propose you know more internationalist and more egalitarian uh, solution to the to you know to transform the structure of our economic system it's not you know let me make clear right away that it's not that I believe that this is going to happen uh, tomorrow morning, uh, you know, after a quiet uh, deliberation uh, in uh, all theater at LSE. And, you know, I think right now it's clear that the, the nationalist discourse and the, uh, you know, uh, identity-based politics, you know, provides a much simpler message which, which right now is, uh, you know, as, as uh, uh, you know, is gaining strength. And, you know, this is the uh, first time I come to, to uh, London and Britain uh, after Brexit, so of course this is a, uh, you know, this is the right place to, to, to refer to that. But I think in the end, uh, you know, the kind of nationalist uh, politics that we've seen with, uh, with Trump and the Brexit, or that we see in other countries in, in Europe, and, uh, you know, yesterday for the first time, the center-right uh, uh, parties in Germany voted with the extreme-right party to form a coalition in uh, in uh, Thuringia, uh, for the first time a regional government uh, is formed this way in Germany. So this is a matter not only for, uh, you know, Britain and US, but all over Europe and in other parts of the world. You know, the, the, I think the, the xenophobic forces and nationalist forces are uh, gaining strength. But in the end, this will not solve uh, the problem of rising inequalities. This will certainly not solve the, the rising challenges of uh, climate change and uh, environmental uh, uh, challenges. So, I, you know, I think we will come back to more uh, internationalist and I think more egalitarian solution. And I think it's very important, uh, you know, not to wait uh, for the, uh, you know, coming 
crises, either uh, financial or social or, uh, or environmental crises, to think about uh, how to, to organize uh, the economic system uh, differently. So that's the uh, spirit in which I present uh, this uh, uh, conclusion and lessons from history for the future. Uh, if you go to this website, you know, uh, uh, Piketty, PSE, uh, ENS, FR, slash ideology, you will get uh, all the complete set of figures, series, uh, uh, and also the slides that I, I present, that I will present today. Okay, so in today's presentation, you know, I'm going to try to cover these four points. Uh, so this looks very organized, but at some point this may become a bit more chaotic because I have certainly planned too much to show you, and so I will have to accelerate when you will tell me that I should speed up and get uh, get close to the end. So first point is going to be about what I, I call here the failure of the French Revolution and more generally the sacralization of property in the 19th century and the, the colonial inequality peak. Then I will move in the second point to uh, the reduction of inequality in the 20th century and the role played by social mobilization and also by violent uh, shocks due to the basically to the political contradiction of inequality and capital accumulation uh, in the 19th century and up until World War One. Uh, the third point will be about the rise of inequality since the 1980s, 1990s, and the role played again not so much by economic or technological forces as such, but by two major uh, political and ideological uh, turning point, uh, the, the, the failure, the end of Soviet communism, and also Reaganism, which in the end, I will argue, was a failure in the sense that the uh, the, 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 the promise that growth will rise and that, you know, the rise of inequality will be compensated by higher innovation and higher growth for all, you know, what did not really materialize. And 30 years later, I think this contributes together with post-communist disillusionment with the general well, with a general feeling of demoralization with respect to uh, economic solution in general and, and certainly to the, the possibility of a, of, a, uh, of a more equitable economic system. And, and, and this contributes to feed the kind of uh, uh, nationalist and identitarian uh, drift that we see today. And then I will conclude with the alternative um, uh, path that I will uh, that that I have already referred to with the, the rise of uh, you know slow rise of social federalism and participatory socialism, but which I think in the long run, you know, this is uh, this is uh, uh, the kind of evolution that that we 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 uh, we will in the end follow because the other paths, although they may seem easier in the short run, uh, they will not solve the problem we have to solve. So let me start with the first point and what I describe as the failure of the French Revolution. Uh, what I mean by this is that there's a, a, a promise for more equality at the time of the French Revolution, certainly in terms of equality of rights and at least at a formal level. And in practice, uh, in fact, the, the, what we see is a rising concentration of wealth and property in the 19th century. Partly, you know, the right of property sort of becomes like a new religion, uh, and, and, you know, there's no real attempt to redistribute property in part because of the fear of not knowing where to stop redistribution. Uh, the, the colonial dimension uh, is uh, sort of the extreme 
uh, illustration of this uh, sacralization of property at the world level and also you know the way financial compensation was paid to slave owners as uh, as um, at the time of abolition of slavery in the 19th century also provides an illustration of how far uh, you know the sacralization of property uh, can go as uh, an ideology so let me start with this graph where you have Uh, the evolution of the concentration of property uh, in, in France in the 19th century and 20th century. So as you can see, so at the top you have the share of total property of all forms uh, uh, going to the top 1%. And you can see that in the 19th century you have actually a rising concentration of property. And at the eve of World War I you have almost 70% of total wealth, uh, private wealth owned by the top 1% uh, in Paris. Uh, in France it's in between 50 and 60%, but this is enormous. Now, you have a decline of inequality in the 20th century, and, uh, you know, although there's been a, a rebound of inequality since the 1980s, let me really stress that we are still today, uh, you know, much less uh, unequal than what we were a, a century ago. And so there is, you know, I want to stress this optimistic uh, dimension in my book, which is that in the long run, You know, there's a long-run trend toward the reduction uh, of inequality, and and, uh, and and you know, I think this can continue. And you know, I think this was an enormous success in the 20th century, where you had both a reduction of inequality, increased mobility, increased economic prosperity, and you know, we have to to keep in mind this uh, uh, legacy. At the same time, uh, you know, this reduction in the concentration of of uh, wealth. Uh, you know, should not be overestimated, and which, as you can see, even at the end, you know, the share of total wealth owned by the bottom 50% is still, uh, you know, three or four times smaller than the share owned by the top 1%, in spite of the fact that, you know, of course, the bottom 50% is 50 times more numerous than the top 1%, so which gives a sense of how concentrated wealth uh, has always been. And this is also one of the limitations of social democratic uh, societies during the 20th century in terms of diffusion of wealth and property and access to property. I mean, you could say we cannot do better than that, but, you know, I, I think it's possible to do better, and that's partly why in the book I discuss uh, different uh, solutions to, to facilitate uh, the diffusion of wealth, in particular with the idea of inheritance for all that, uh, that uh, you know, that has been uh, already advocated in the past, uh, you know, Thomas Paine in the 18th century, uh, Tony Atkinson more recently, but which I think is one of the uh, avenues through which you can, you can, uh, do better than what we've seen uh, there. At this stage, what I want to concentrate is why in the 19th century you don't have uh, any uh, significant uh, uh, reduction of inequality in property. I, I also want to stress, you know, this is actually representative of most European countries, so in particular at the eve of World War I, uh, all European societies, so here I have uh, France, Britain, Sweden, you know, and so if you look at the top 10% share in total wealth, uh, so this is average for 1880-1914, you have, you know, between 80 and 90% Uh, of wealth belonging to the top uh, 10%, you know, including 60 to 70% to the top 1%, but if you look at the top 10, it's 80 to 90. So, you know, Britain is even more unequal like France, but in the end, it doesn't make such a big difference. So, you know, the French elite at the time and the Third Republic, you know, like to describe Britain as much more unequal than France, and this was an argument not to create an income tax in France until the summer of 1914, and this was really the need to, not to invest in schools, but to pay the war, for the war against Germany, which in the end 
change the political situation and let the French Senate to vote the income tax. And one of the big arguments at the time is uh, we are already a country of equals, you know, thanks to the French Revolution, so we don't need a progressive income tax. Now, when you, you know, compare the situation... Uh, Okay, Britain was even more unequal, but you know, in the end, it makes very little difference. Sweden is also an interesting case because we tend to look today at Sweden as a very egalitarian country, but in fact, for a long time, it was extremely unequal. Uh, and, and in fact, in, in, in terms of political system, it was even more unequal than France and Britain in the early 19th, in the early 20th century, you know, between 1865 and 1911 in Sweden, you have a system of voting rights where basically Well, first, only the top 20% percent wealthholders uh, men can vote. But within this group, you have between one, one vote and 100 votes, you know, depending on the level of your property and the tax you pay. So it's, uh, you know, in, in, in France or Britain in the 19th century, when you have a wealth-based uh, voting system, there was just one threshold. If you are below the threshold, you don't vote, and above the threshold, you vote. The Swede did it in a much more sophisticated way by having up to 100 votes uh, uh, if you are very wealthy. And in the municipal elections, there was actually no uh, limitation to the number of votes you can get. And so you had a few dozen municipalities in Sweden up until 1911 where one single uh, voter had more than half of the vote, you know, including the prime minister of Sweden at the time who was a count, you know, an aristocrat like all uh, uh, prime ministers at the time. And so... If you had told someone in Sweden in 1910 that Sweden was going to become very egalitarian, you know, he, he could not have believed it. And in the end, it's really through a huge uh, political mobilization, social mobilization, that the, uh, uh, you know, working class in Sweden organized itself, uh, took power in 1932 with the Social Democratic Party and put the state capacity of Sweden uh, to the you know in order to to to, uh, to you know to to achieve a very different political objective uh, using the capacity to observe and register income and wealth not to distribute voting rights in proportion to income and wealth but rather to make Uh, uh, people pay progressive tax on the basis of income and wealth and pay for education and health, etc. So this is a good example where transformation, it was not so much the war because World War I or World War II had a limited impact in Sweden. It was more the, the political mobilization which changed completely the structure of inequality. And, you know, I try in the book to tell different uh, stories like this showing, you know, the, how the power of ideological transformation and political mobilization can change things much more quickly than what the elite would ever imagine and, and would always pretend that nothing will uh, change, but, you know, history shows uh, things differently. So this was the situation at the eve of World War One. you know, extreme concentration of property. I, I want to stress that, you know, today, so if you compare, so this is Europe 1913, so this is average of, of Britain, uh, France, Sweden, but you have the same in other European societies for which we have data. So today, is, it's more equal. Uh, it's less so in the U.S. So the U.S. today is sort of intermediate between Europe today and Europe in 1913. But what I want to stress is that even today, you know, wealth is very concentrated. So, you know, bottom 50%, you know, share is typically around 5% of total wealth, whereas the top 10 is between 50 to 60%. So, again, you know, there's been a reduction of inequality in the long run, but you know, we should not uh, exaggerate its, uh, its magnitude. So now let, let's go back to the first, to the, I will come to the 20th century in a minute, but let's step back a little bit to the 19th century. Why is it that you have no 
you know, remember in the 19th century, you have this rising concentration of property uh, following the, in the century following the French Revolution. So wh why is, is there so little redistribution of property? Well, in fact, there was some discussion about redistribution at the time of the French Revolution, but, but nothing was, in the end, nothing was adopted. So these are two examples of progressive tax projects that were actually discussed in 18th century France. So this is the example of a progressive income tax this is the example of a progressive inheritance tax. So, you know, basically you go from a 5% tax rate below average income or below average wealth, and then you go up all the way toward 70-80% if you have 1,000 times average income and wealth. So this is actually very close to what will be adopted in the 20th century in the U.S. and in many European countries. It's interesting to see that there were discussions like this already in the 18th century, uh, but the, the balance of power somehow did not allow for this kind of proposal to be adopted. So at the time of the French Revolution, there's no explicit redistribution of, of wealth or income. Uh, the, the church properties are being expropriated, but they are not transferred to, to landless peasants. They are auctioned to those who can buy this land, a little bit like the expropriation of monasteries in Britain 200 years uh, before. And, and so in the end, this led to a reinforcement of, of how much top private property owners own, but not really to any form of, of uh, redistribution. Now, one of the arguments, in, in, so in France in the 19th century, the system of taxation, like in most European countries, is a flat tax system. So, for instance, the system of inheritance taxation, you pay 1% whether you transmit 1,000 francs or 100 million thousand francs. There are discussions in 1848, in 1872, to introduce a higher tax rate, you know, say 5% for very large wealth. But... All the time, you know, the key argument is to say, you know, if you start doing that, uh, you will never know where to stop, and you know, this will become a, a chaos. And so, don't don't even think of doing that. And and so that was, you know, the argument was really, if we start to question property rights and imagine the possibility of redistribution, you will not know where to stop. One illustration of this sort of quasi-sacralization of private property is, uh, as I mentioned before, the uh, emancipation of slavery, where, in fact, the choice was made, both in Britain and in France and pretty much everywhere, to compensate not slaves for, 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 for being exploited for, for decades or centuries, but slave owners were fully compensated, uh, including, so in, in France, there is a case of... Uh, so, you know, Saint-Domingue in the 18th century was the largest concentration of slaves uh, in the Atlantic uh, uh, slavery system. There was a slave revolt in Saint-Domingue during the French Revolution. In the end, Saint-Domingue became an independent country under the name of Haiti in 1804. But when the French monarchy in 1825 finally uh, recognize the independence of Haiti. The condition was that Haiti would have to pay to France a very large public debt, which was set at the time to uh, the equivalent of three years of national production of Haiti of 1825. So we would say today 300% of GDP in order to compensate the French slave owners for their loss of property. Okay, and at the time, you know, this looked like, uh, uh, you know, obvious to, you know, the, like Tocqueville, like uh, the, you know, so-called liberal intellectual of the time. It was clear for him, or actually for the British, uh, uh, you know, liberal intellectual of the time, that you need to compensate uh, uh, slave owners for their loss of property. Uh, and the key argument, uh, so in the case of Haiti. 
you know, of course, it was impossible to repay so much money in one payment, you know, three years of output. So what happened is, uh, you know, the French bankers came and, and proposed to refinance the debt uh, with interest. And, and, and in the end, this was repaid by IT until the middle of the 20th century uh, to France, you know, which is a clear illustration of the contradiction between the, the supposedly uh, egalitarian objective of the French Revolution and the, the, the colonial reality and the, the way property was uh, was really sacralized as something you know you cannot question. And the argument of the time of people like Tocqueville uh, was to say, you know, if you start expropriating that kind of property without uh, compensation, again, you will not know where to stop. You know, what are you going to do with someone? who owned slaves in the past, who sold this plantation and now owns a building in Paris or a financial portfolio in Paris, you're also going to ask him or her to pay back some of the wealth and, and indeed, well, you know, fair compensation to slaves, uh, you know, and uh, would have probably involved, uh, you know, questioning of, of all property owners, all large property owners, and not only those who owned slaves right at the time of, of abolition. So, you know, the sacralization of property uh, was uh, uh, was very strong at the time. Uh, you know, there's a lot more that could be said about, you know, so in Britain at the, at the time of abolition in 1833, there was also complete compensation to British slave owners, and there's a team at University College London that has been publishing all the data and analyze the role it has played in 19th century uh, uh, Britain. Uh, uh, you know, this was published just a couple of years ago, so there's a lot more about this in, in the book. More generally, you know, if you look in, at extreme income inequality in historical perspective, you know, Haiti as a slave society will be a very extreme case, but uh, South Africa, Algeria, you know, colonial societies, generally speaking, at the end of the 19th century and in the early 20th century will be very extreme point in uh, inequality. I, you know, I'm not going to get into all the details, but if you look at Algeria in around 1930, so we've gathered historical data on, on uh, French colonies, and Tony Atkinson had done the same for British colonies in Africa. You have levels of inequality of income that are even higher than, you know, in, in European societies uh, uh, before, uh, before World War I. This has to do with, uh, with uh, extreme inequality of property, but also with a legal system that was, of course, very favorable to, uh, to the colonizers. Uh, an educational system... So here, this is the concentration of educational spending, you know, in Algeria in 1950s, so, or uh, almost until independence, uh, where in effect, you know, the top 10% of the population, which will be the, the French uh, settler and European uh, settlers, will receive, you know, more than 80% of total educational investment in the country, which, you know, as compared to the situation in the in in France, where you 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 do have a very unequal educational system, also inside France at the time, um, uh, and you know even today the top ten percent is receiving uh, you know less you know almost half of what the bottom fifty percent receive, which is a lot given that they are five times less uh, numerous. Uh, but you know in in the colonial context, the, the extreme inequality in access to educational investment was much much more extreme uh, than this. Now, if we go to uh, the, uh, so let me, you know, accelerate a little bit and go to the reduction of inequality in the 20th century. Now, this came with a pretty radical questioning of uh, the ideology of, of property, which was made possible by very large uh, social mobilization, socialist movement during the 19th century, which sort of prepared 
this evolution. So, of course, World War I, the Great Depression, World War II played an important role uh, for this transformation. But as I stress in the book, it's also the long-term uh, uh, intellectual and ideological change that made it uh, possible, uh, that made this change possible. And, you know, so this was accelerated by the violent crisis, which can themselves, you know, these crises themselves can be viewed also as a consequence of the very strong tension created by domestic and international uh, inequality. So let me uh, uh, say, you know, it took, so the reduction of inequality in the, in the 20th century took different forms. One form is the uh, what I refer here as the invention of progressive taxation. So you can see in the, you know, before World War I, the top tax rate applying to the highest level of income were not very large. And France actually was the very last country to create the income tax in 1914 for the reason I mentioned before. Uh, but then after World War I, many countries, starting with the US in, in, uh, in uh, you know, 1920 and, and then under Roosevelt, uh, you know, had very, very high uh, top tax rate. You know, in the U.S., it was on average uh, more than 80 percent top income tax rate between 1930 and 1980. Uh, apparently, this did not destroy the U.S. capitalism. You know, otherwise we would have noticed it. Uh, if anything, the growth rate and productivity growth rate were much higher at this time than they were since the Reagan years and the uh, big uh, cut in, in top tax rate. So. You know, I know this is a discussion which still uh, many people have a hard time uh, having, but, you know, this is part of our historical legacy, and, I, you know, I think, it, uh, you know, I try in this book to reevaluate this policy and make the claim that, you know, this policy contributed to the reduction uh, of inequality, contributed to make the rise of the overall tax burden acceptable to the middle class and the, and the lower groups. And this is a problem that we have today with the, with the big decline of tax progressivity, is that this, this raises the question about the legitimacy of taxation and, and fiscal consent by the middle class and the uh, poorest economic groups. Uh, so at the time, the, at this time, this facilitated the rise of, of the tax burdens and the financing of public investment in uh, infrastructure, education, and in the end, this contributed uh, to overall economic prosperity. Or, you know, this is what I argue. So this is the statutory top tax rate. If you look at the effective rates taking into account both uh, income tax and indirect tax, you can see that you have effective rates, uh, you know, up to 60, 70 percent on the very top group in the U.S. for pretty long period of time, which have completely disappeared uh, after the Reagan, uh, Reagan years. You have the same uh, invention of progressive taxation regarding the taxation of inheritance, you know, which was up to 70, 80 percent in the U.S., in Britain, in Japan. So in France and Germany, this was generally lower, partly because uh, the redistribution of wealth happens through uh, other means, you know, destruction in relation to war, uh, very large inflation. I mean, in the end, uh, you know, I think progressive taxation is a more uh, civilized uh, manner to, to, to do it. And so at, at the end of the period, you know, you still have, you know, 30 to 55 percent tax rate. So Japan actually increased their top inheritance tax rate to 55 percent a few uh, years ago. Now, one of the political contradictions that made this transformation possible was also the, the, the sort of international contradictions uh, of capital accumulation before World War I. So here on this graph, you see the level of foreign assets owned by British and French property uh, holders in the rest of the world 
up until 1914. And so you can see, so this, you have a huge fall after, you know, during World War I, which was partly due so, to a number of factors. You know, there was some straight expropriation, like the Russian government bonds, you know, were expropriated. You also have a, 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 a inflation, a loss in property values and many stock markets around the world at the time. You also have the fact that uh, British and French property owners uh, will have to sell a lot of their foreign assets in order to finance the war and in order to lend money uh, to their government during World War I. Uh, and, uh, you know, at the, at the end of the period, you know, after World War II, you have basically no uh, uh, foreign asset left. I, I have shown you also at the end of the period, you know, for comparison, the level of foreign assets owned as a fraction of their national income by Japan, Germany, uh, China today, and, you know, which are the three countries that have had large trade surpluses in recent decades and that have accumulated foreign reserve in the rest of the world. And this is getting pretty large, but this is, you know, of course, much, much smaller than France and Britain at the time. So France and Britain at the time, you know, they will get so much foreign capital income you know, an extra 10% of national income for Britain and an extra 5% of national income for France, that they could afford being in a permanent trade deficit, 1, 2, 3% of GDP on average between 1818 and 1914. But this was not a problem because they could uh, you know, use uh, the capital income not only to finance this trade deficit, but to keep buying the rest of the world. So, you know, this is a process that can go very far indeed. And uh, in the end, you know, even without the World War I, you know, it's hard to see how this could have continued for a very long time because, uh, you know, of course, the countries that were being owned, in particular in the uh, colonial empires, you know, at some point, uh, you know, will, will disagree with this. And, and the, you know, the decolonization movement and the independence movement was the first, you know, political reaction to this. And you can see also the competition with Germany. So Germany was, was lagging behind in terms of foreign asset accumulation. Germany didn't have the same uh, colonial empire. Uh, but Germany at the same time had, had, had become at the end of the uh, 19th century the, the main uh, manufacturing and, and uh, demographic power in Europe. And of course, this competition led, contributed largely to the to, you know, to the shocks that will follow during World War I and World War II. And I think this is sort of the major uh, internal contradiction to the system of capital accumulation that was taking place uh, in the 19th century and which fi finally led to the destruction of the uh, system. Uh, now, it's interesting to mention that so a big part of these foreign assets were transferred into uh, public debt. So if you look at the graph 30 years later, you know, this is public debt in Britain, France, Germany. So you can see in 1950, you have 200% to 300% of national income in public debt. This was largely, you know, people who own foreign assets and colonial assets who sold their assets and lent money to their government to pay for the war. Now, what's interesting is that the government, in particular the, the German and the French government, decided around 1950 not to repay this debt. And so the decision was taken. So in the case of France, there was a lot of inflation to get rid of the debt. In the case of Germany, there was a more clever system. You know, Germany had had already a lot of inflation in the 1920s, which helped, uh, you know, get rid, of course, of the public debt, but it also had lots of negative consequences. So between 1948 and 1952, the German government implements a, a, a more imaginative system, uh, which is basically a very 
highly progressive tax on private wealth, you know, private uh, financial portfolio in particular, going from uh, less than 5% for the low wealth level up to 80-90% for the large uh, private uh, wealth. Uh, these private uh, financial portfolio are made of a lot of uh, public bonds because there's a lot of public assets. So, in, you know, you tax at 90% the public debt in order to reduce the public debt, which is a bit uh, uh, trivial. But, at, you know, at, at some point, uh, you know, you, you, someone has to pay. And, and you know, you, and, and so you have the same strategy in Japan at the same time with a large uh, exceptional uh, wealth tax up to 80-90% on very large uh, private wealth. And, you know, these strategies, so it's easy to say today, you know, half a century later, or 70 years later, but, you know, it was a big success in the sense that it allowed to reduce very fast the public debt. And this, is, this contributed to the fact that Germany, Japan, and, and most European countries were able uh, to, uh, to invest in public infrastructure and education in the 50s, 60s without a large public debt to, to, to follow. So I think it's, it, you know, it's important to realize that the, uh, you know, a different choice could have been made. We could, you know, these countries could have decided to repay this public debt with no inflation and no exceptional wealth tax. But then we will still be repaying today, you know, interest payment on this huge, uh, you know, when you have 200% of national income to repay, uh, you know, even with large uh, primary budget surplus, you, you could still be there today, which in effect would have meant, uh, you know, repaying, you know, the, the, the people who had uh, foreign assets before the war or their children, you know, forever. And, and I think this would have been a pretty stupid uh, choice. And I think it's good that different choices were made. But this required a, a sort of deep questioning of the of the of the legitimacy of of private property when it when you know there are other priorities like uh, like reconstruction and, and you know I think it's important to remember these lessons today as we have you know other priorities like uh, global warming or inequality I mean it's a different context than the context of reconstruction but I think there are still uh, lessons to be to be learned from this uh, experience so now let me move to uh, to the rise of inequality in the recent period so. As I said, you know, there are two big evolutions in the 1980s, 1990s that lead to a rebound of inequality. One is the fall of communism, which has become, in a way, the best ally of hypercapitalism, or so I, I argue in the, in, the, in the book. You know, I think it fed a general disillusion about the possibility of a just economy. And then, you know, the Reaganism and ultimately the failure of Reaganism also contributed, I think, to the form of, uh, of disillusion that we have uh, today. So let, let me accelerate. If we go, if we look at what data we have for income inequality in, in Soviet Russia, we find relatively small monetary inequality. Now, of course, there are many other forms of inequality. Although, you know, it was not complete equality. In the end, it was not very different from what you have in, in Western Europe. The problem was more the, the property system and the centralized state property system, which clearly was, was, was not working very well. Anyway, after the fall of the Soviet Union, you have the shock therapy, you have a, a very fast privatization to the benefit of a small group of, uh, of oligarchs. Uh, you know, some of them are now in London and Paris and, and lots of places. And, and, uh, yeah, and, but, okay, the point is that there's been a huge increase in, in inequalities. This is probably an understatement, you know, what we have, the, the, the red curve at the end of the period. Uh, this came together with a lot of opacity. So if you look, so this is data 
letter from uh, my uh, friend and colleague Gabriel Zuckman on tax havens, uh, and you can see that Russia is really at the top of the world in terms of tax havens and, and uh, together with, uh, with the Gulf countries. Uh, Russia, uh, you've got a huge increase in the concentration of, of, of wealth following privatization in Russia and also in China. So, you know, if you look here, the top decile wealth shares, you can see uh, Russia and China that have gone very fast toward levels that you see in the United States. And, and this is probably an understatement given the, you know, the limitation of our data sources. Now, the point is that, you know, in Russia today, uh, there's no progressive income tax at all. You know, it's uh, 13% whether you have 100 rubles per month or 1 billion rubles per month. So, you know, even Trump uh, doesn't dare uh, proposing uh, that and going so far. You have no inheritance tax at all in Russia or in China. You know, it's zero percent. Uh, uh, Hong Kong is a quite incredible example of a country that has become even more inegalitarian than that has suppressed in, in its inheritance tax after becoming communist or at least after joining, a, a, you know, a communist regime. Uh, and, and today in Asia, you know, if you have a lot of private wealth to transmit, you should go and, and die in communist China because uh, if you go to capitalist uh, Taiwan or capitalist South Korea or capitalist Japan, you will pay inheritance tax of 40, 50 percent, uh, even 55 percent in Japan. It was increased recently. You know, in spite of the fact that Japan, you know, it was under a center-right government and Japan doesn't have a particularly left-wing uh, cult political culture. And, and the fact that China and, and, and Russia, you know, have gone from uh, complete abolition to, of private property to, to, to this situation today, you know, it's a clear illustration of this big ideological shift that, that uh, you know, uh, uh, contribute today to, 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 this, uh, to, to the rise of inequality and the difficulties to develop international coordination. The other big transformation in the 80s has been uh, the rise of inequality in the U.S. So you see that in the U.S., you know, the, the bottom 50% share of income and not only of property as is now below the top 1% share, uh, following, uh, you know, many policies in Reagan, you know, it, it involves uh, the minimum wage was frozen and you had a big increase of, of top income groups. Now, this was supposed, I mean, the rise of inequality and the decline of taxation on, on, uh, on, on, on top income groups was supposed to feed uh, innovation and to increase uh, economic growth, which then could have justified, you know, the rise in inequality and, and, you know, as long as everybody benefits from rising uh, income, including at the bottom, you know, why, why not? The problem is that if anything, growth has actually uh, declined and has actually been divided by two. So if you look at the, you know, the green curve, this is a per, per capita national income growth in the U.S. So this was 2.2 percent per year between 1950 and 1990. This has been 1.1 percent per year between 1990 and 2020. So, you know, what, what's the story? You know, what you will need to say, uh, okay, uh, growth uh, was about to be divided by four, and, and thanks to the Reagan policy, it was only divided by two. Uh, you know, I think it's very difficult to make this argument today, and I think the, what I mean by the failure of Reaganism is that there was this promise that growth will, will increase thanks to, uh, to the reduction in top income taxation, and you know, the top tax rate has been divided by two, but, you know, the growth rate, in fact, has also been divided by two. By the way, I'm not saying that the growth rate was divided by two because the top tax rate was divided by two. I think there's another factor here which is more 
in my view, the stagnation in educational investment, the fact that historically the U.S. Had, was an educational leader and has ceased to be an educational leader, partly due to the very unequal higher education system uh, since the 1980s. But anyway, the point is that, you know, reducing the top income tax rate and increasing inequality and having more uh, billionaires and more wealthy billionaires is clearly not sufficient to increase uh, the, the, the growth performance. And I think that this contributes today to a feeling of disillusionment and the fact that political leaders uh, like, like Trump in particular, you know, that try to find uh, a reason to explain the lack of shared prosperity in the U.S. middle class and lower class and typically come with a story, uh, you know, saying, okay, this is because of uh, uh, the competition with Mexico, this is because of China, this is because of, you know, the rest of the world that are taken the uh, hard labor of white America uh, away from you, and, you know, this is getting a bit uh, frightening. At the same time, as you have this uh, transformation of, of, of uh, policies toward less redistribution, you also see how the structure of the electorate voting for the Democratic Party in the U.S. and also for the Labour Party in Britain and also for the Socialist and Communist Party in France has moved from being an electorate uh, centered around uh, less educated uh, uh, voters to being, uh, you know, the, having a bigger level of electoral support among the most highly educated. Uh, this is something that uh, uh, I also find for, for uh, other uh, countries. So, you know, this is for US, France, Britain. I, I get similar evolution for Sweden, Germany, Norway, I, you know, many other parties. You see a, a transformation of the, of the structure of the educational cleavage, basically going from a situation where uh, you know, the, the lowest education group were, were uh, voting for these parties, social democratic parties, broadly speaking, in the post-war period, to a situation where these parties have become uh, the parties of the winners of the education uh, game and the education competition. I try to explain this in my book. I, I, you know, I don't claim I have a perfect explanation. There are certainly different uh, uh, explanations. Part of it, I argue, is, is because these parties, you know, sort of... Uh, abandon uh, any form of ambitious uh, redistributive uh, program uh, gradually over the 80s, 90s. Uh, the, the, you know, there were new educational challenges, especially with the rise of educational uh, higher education and, and the notion of educational justice was also more difficult to define than at the time of primary and secondary educational push. Uh, but in any case, you know, there, there was a change in the, in the uh, complete change in the, in, the, in the structure of political coalition. In the context of Europe, the sort of voter disillusionment toward uh, uh, social democratic parties and toward uh, uh, governing parties in general led to a lot of distrust against Europe. And so this is, uh, you know, Brexit time uh, in the presentation. But what I want to argue that, you know, if you look, so this is the structure of vote, you know, the percentage of voters voting to remain in the European Union in Britain in 2016. So you can see that only the top income, education, and wealth group were voting uh, to remain in the European Union. Uh, now, you know, when, I, when you, you show this in France or in the rest of Europe, you, sometimes people say, oh, this is because of, you know, this uh, crazy uh, British uh, nationalist and, you know, what can we do about it? But in fact, you know, in fact, you have exactly the same if you look at the French referendum of 1992 
and 2005. So, you know, there were two major referenda on Europe uh, in France. 1992 was the Maastricht Treaty, creation of the euro, and 2005 was the uh, referendum on the uh, Constitutional Treaty. And you can see again that, you know, you basically only have the very top groups voting in favor of Europe uh, and, and the bottom 50% voting against it. So I should say, you know, I, I voted for Europe in both referenda and, you know, I am very much a, a federalist believer, but at some point, you know, you, you have to take this seriously. You know, when you have this kind of strong social cleavage with respect to the European Union, uh, uh, in 1992, 2005, 2016, in two countries that have very different history with respect to their relation to Europe, you know, you cannot just say that it's a simple misunderstanding and that, you know, with better explanation, uh, uh, you know, people will understand and will start to, to support Europe. You know, I think it means the way uh, the European Union is organized and, and, and the way it's built around the principle of free movement of goods, services, capital, and without any common uh, taxation, without any common social policy or wage policy or education policy, anything uh, which with some explicit social objective to reduce inequality, in the end, this is working, uh, you know, mostly for the benefit uh, of the most mobile uh, uh, groups, the social groups with the highest level of financial capital or human capital, and people at the bottom uh, feel, and I think it's more than a perception that they, they, they somehow they don't benefit uh, as much, and sometimes they actually uh, 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 face uh, some of the social damages uh, uh, because of this increased competition. And in particular, in terms of tax policy, you can see, uh, you know, the discourse basically uh, 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 saying that, uh, you know, the, the top people can move easily so you cannot tax them, therefore you're going to tax more the immobile group, you know, the group with less mobility, but then at some point the reaction of this immobile group is to say, well, okay, then let's get away of this uh, system. So I think this is a very serious uh, contradiction, so it's like, it's a little bit the equivalent of the political contradiction of international accumulation that I showed you uh, uh, earlier, uh, well, this was the time of colonial empires and competition between European uh, nation states, we are in a different context, but here the contradiction is is the contradiction that our electoral uh, democracies are facing with respect to globalization, is that you have an official discourse that this is working uh, in the benefit of all and for prosperity of all, but somehow the middle class and the lower income groups, you know, don't, don't, uh, don't share this view, and, 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 you know, this is obviously uh, threatening the, the process in a, in a very serious manner. There are also contradictions uh, uh, misunderstanding between countries. So let, let me go very fast. You know, if you look at Eastern European countries today, from a German or French viewpoint, you know, we only see the, the green curve, which are the uh, public transfer from European Union budget to uh, Eastern Europe, and, and they are pretty large, you know, two, three, four percent of GDP. But in Eastern Europe, you know, people have in mind more the outflow of private profits, which correspond to the fact that wages uh, in Poland, in the Czech Republic, have not increased as much uh, as they thought, and so many of the investment made by German investors or French investors or uh, Western investors in general in these countries have been generating huge profit margin. Uh, now, from a French or German viewpoint, you know, we will, you know, one possible attitude would be to say. 
you know, okay, the level of wages and profits, you know, there's nothing we can do about it. This is just the outcome of competition and, and you know, free and fair competition. And, and, and we should only look at the public transfer after the market equilibrium has taken place. And, and, you know, the public transfer are a sign of the generosity of, uh, of you know, the, the rich country of Western Europe. Except that, you know, the level of wages and profits also depend on the legal system, the social system, the bargaining power of, of unions and workers, the existence of social harmonization or the lack of social harmonization. And given the magnitude of this outflow of profits, you know, uh, we, you know, you have to accept the, the discussion about this. We have the same kind of misunderstanding about the public debt crisis. So here you have the interest rate on, uh, on, on public debt within the Eurozone. So you have a complete convergence of interest rate between 1999-2009. Then you have a huge, uh, you know, financial uh, speculation after 2009. The, the, you know, in the end, the European Central Bank, uh, you know, uh, uh, entered into the game and, and there's been a stabilization at the end. But there is still a lot of misunderstanding uh, between countries about, you know, what happened over this period and what we should do in the future. Typically, again, you know, France and Germany, where the, you know, we have a zero percent interest rate, will tend to tell Greece, uh, you know, okay, you were about to have a 10 percent interest rate on the market and we, have uh, lent you at 4 or 5% interest rate money that we borrowed at 0 or 1%. So we have been very generous with you. And now from the Greek side, you know, there's a different reading of the event, which is, well, you made a big financial margin uh, on us. And, you know, both discourses are right. Again, it depends what's your reference point. Is the market price here, the interest rate, the reference? Or do you, like for the wage shares in the previous example, or do you consider that in this case, you know, this is a market that should not exist in the sense that if you have a common currency, you need to have a common uh, interest rate, a common public debt with the, you know, Eurozone assembly to decide on the level of deficit. You know, in the U.S., if the Federal Reserve had to choose every morning between the interest rate of California, Louisiana, New York, you know, this will be a huge mess. And, and in the end, this system is not working even from the point of view of uh, savers in Germany or Netherlands. They get zero percent uh, interest rate and everybody is unhappy. And, and sort of the fear of a more democratic governance in the Eurozone in the end is making everybody uh, fail and hate this system. And, and if we don't change it sufficiently fast, you know, I don't think this will, uh, this will continue for, for very long. Now, let me conclude. <laughs> By, you know, referring to some positive, uh, you know, alternative trajectories for the future, let me simply say, you know, three, uh, you know, point one about educational justice, one about what I call in the book social and temporary property, which what I mean by this is the need to balance the right of property owners with right of workers, right of local government, right of environmental association. Basically, I think we can extend, you know, a lot of what has been done in particular in Germany, in Nordic countries in terms of co-management. We can favor, uh, you know, better access to property. So I talk about a proposal in the direction of inheritance for all. As, as I said, you know, there's a long tradition uh, of discussion uh, in this direction. Here, the novelty is to try to use both the tax revenue from the inheritance tax and most importantly, the annual wealth tax to 
to pay for this inheritance for all, uh, so as to, to limit individual accumulation to a, to a reasonable magnitude. Uh, social federalism is, is the general idea that you cannot have free exchange of goods and services and, and capital without explicit uh, uh, objective in terms of uh, carbon emission, uh, social and fiscal justice. Uh, I'm, I'm going to stop there, but what, you know, again, I want to stress is that, you know, at some point, whether because of climate crisis or financial crisis or social crisis, you know, we'll have to change quite deeply the way uh, the current economic system is working. Uh, the kind of nationalist uh, path that we see today, you know, may be easier to follow, easier to explain, but in the end, you know, it's not going to solve this problem. And, you know, I think we'll have to return uh, to uh, this kind of, uh, of discussion uh, pretty soon. And, you know, some of the development, in the, including in the current uh, U.S. Uh, uh, political campaign for the Democratic primaries, uh, you know, in in spite of the difficulties they had to, to get their results out in Iowa, uh, you know, I think suggests that, uh, you know, things can change very quickly, you know, the kind of proposals that you hear, for instance, about a progressive wealth tax in the U.S. campaign, you know, are very different from what you would have heard at the time of Clinton or Blair or whatever. So, you know, these things are always changing much faster than what uh, many observers uh, Tend to uh, imagine. So, thanks a lot for your attention, and I'm looking forward for your questions. Okay, that was a tour de force of the history of inequality since the beginning of time. I'm going to open the floor to questions. If it's okay, can I take three at a time, and then mm -hmm. we can get through more, hopefully? Uh, and so if I could ask you to raise your hand, tell us who you are, and ask your question as quickly as possible. Uh, I'm going to start with... I'm looking for a woman to start. Can I have a woman? Can I have a woman? No, you're not a woman. <laughs> um, all right, I'll take, a, I'll take the two gentlemen back here, and then I'm... Where are the women? Come on. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Second round, I want all women. I'll take the gentleman in the back. So those two and that one there. Hi. Firstly, thank you for the talk. My name is Rory. I'm a global politics master's student here at Alice. Um, my question, everyone's probably sick of hearing about Brexit, but <laughs> there's nobody better to ask, I suppose, than you about inequality post-Brexit. What are your views? Do we, will we see quite a dramatic shift in inequality in the UK, or will it stay pretty much the same? Please, go ahead. Hi, my name is Diego Cobb. I'm an executive MPA student at UCL. And thank you for all the research to create a, um, or look to create a more equitable world. My question is, um, what do you think needs to shift politically and socially for a, a tipping point or some big change um, in inequality? Okay. And the gentleman up at the top yep. there. Uh, my name is Mohamed Dawani. Thank you for your presentation. Um, I, I study at um, LSE Ideas, Executive Masters, International Strategy and Diplomacy. Um, I believe we do agree that inequality cannot be eliminated um, under the current existing capitalist model. Do you um, envisage that the existing capitalist model to be uh, reformed in one way or the other? Okay, those are really easy questions. Yeah, sure. Those in no time. <laughs> Very easy indeed. Uh, so, uh, inequality after Brexit. You know, 
I, I think if anything, Brexit is gonna is gonna exacerbate uh, you know the trend toward rising inequality because it will tend to exacerbate uh, you know tax competition and and social competition and you know I think the, the, there will be an attempt in Britain at least with this government to uh, you know to push uh, toward. Uh, uh, you know, more tax competition to attract uh, uh, the most uh, mobile uh, economic actors, the most powerful, uh, you know, corporations and, and uh, uh, high income, high wealth taxpayers. So, you know, we, we'll see we'll see how it goes. You know, it's, it's uh, you know, too early to say, but that that will be the, you know, I think the most natural tendency. And so, you know, I know that the current government, you know, claims, you know, they want to do something about Leveling regional up. inequality. Yeah. You know, they, they want to keep their new voters uh, from the north in one way or another because the Brexit uh, strategy is not going to work for every election. You know, they will have to find something else. But, um, you know, I, I, you know the, I don't think this is the most natural uh, ideological route and, and, and to follow for, for the Conservative Party in this country and that the logic of tax competition will will tend to be the, the strongest one. But, you know, let's, let's, uh, uh, let's see. Uh, wh what kind of, of political shift, you know, can make, uh, you know, a, a change to the system? Uh, you know, I think the, the, the current economic system is, is not working to solve the key problem we have to solve. It's not solving the, the problem of, uh, of rising inequality. It's not solving, you know, as, as you know, we have a huge environmental problem. So, you know, I take this opportunity to show you, you know, estimates we've done on the global distribution of tax emission. You know, if you look at the the top 1% in the world who uh, have the largest carbon emission, you know, they, they come a lot from North America, uh, a little bit from, uh, from Europe as well. Uh, but what's important to have in mind is that these top 1% carbon emitters, you know, they have largest carbon emissions and the bottom 50% of the world who have the lowest carbon emission. So it's clear that, you know, you cannot solve uh, this uh, this uh, climate problem, you know, with the level of inequality we have today, because you know the, you have such a big concentration of emission at the top that it's already you know you, you need to address that. And also, you know, if you want the people in the middle and in the bottom to change their uh, their uh, their energy consumption, you clearly you need to convince them that people at the top are making you know at least as much uh, uh, effort than than what they they do. So I, I you know I think the climate change and the growing awareness that the environmental uh, crisis cannot be solved with the current level of inequality in the current economic system potentially can be a powerful force you know, to deliver the political shift that you were asking about. Now, that being said, you know, nobody knows how much time it will take for the, the concrete uh, sort of uh, uh, manifestation of climate change to, to raise uh, this kind of awareness. You know, it could be that you know we cannot wait for so long, and 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 that there will be other crises, either more social crises or financial crises, that will contribute to the to the political shift. Regarding the last question, is you know how can we how can you reform capitalism? You know what what I stress in my book is that the the the, the kind of property regime and and legal system of property that we have today is already, you know, very, very different from the kind of capitalism we had, uh, say, 100 years ago. So, the, the, you know, over the course of the 20th century, the rights of property owners, you know, have been balanced 
with the rights of, uh, of workers, the rights of, of local government. You know, so today, if you are a, a property owner, you know, you cannot get rid of your tenant or of your worker, at least not as easily as, as was the case a century ago. So the legal system has already uh, change a lot. And there are countries uh, uh, like, you know, I mentioned the case of co-management uh, laws uh, in, in Sweden or Germany where you have uh, between one third or half of the, um, of the, of the seats in, in corporate boards going to uh, worker representative, uh, which means that, you know, if, if in addition to the 50% uh, of the seats that go to uh, worker representative, uh, in, for instance, in large companies in Germany, if in addition you have a, 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 a share, uh, you know, a, a, a stake in the company of 10% of, of equity or 20% of equity, or if a local government has, a, has such a share, you can basically change the majority in the company in spite of the fact that there is a shareholder who has 80% or 90% of the share. So this is a, a system of property and rights of property which is very, very different from uh, you know the standard view of uh, you know one one uh, one share one vote, which you still have you know in Britain or in the U.S. or actually in France, uh, uh, but I think you know this, this is an example showing that this kind of change, you know, you don't need uh, you know the entire world to to do it to go in this direction. You know, Germany, Sweden have done it for half a century, and and in fact this has worked pretty well. This in you know this is not ideal system, but this allowed to to get a better involvement of workers in the long-term strategy of companies. And I think we can continue in this direction. So what I call in my book, you know, participatory socialism, or you can call, uh, you know, social democracy for the 21st century, if you prefer, uh, is just a way to uh, build on this solution to build on what has worked in the 20th century in terms of uh, educational uh, justice, uh, educational equality, uh, uh, co-management, more workers' rights, progressive taxation, as I said, you know, I think we can go further, even further than what we've seen in the, in the 20th century and, and, and move the system toward, in the end, a, a system where you still have private property of reasonable magnitude, but you don't have, you know, uh, uh, excessive concentration of private property and power among uh, uh, property owners, and you have sort of a permanent circulation of, um, of, uh, of uh, you know, wealth and, and, and the economic power that comes with it. Because in the end, you know, we live in societies that are more educated than ever, and, you know, you need this very broad participation uh, uh, to, uh, to the economy by large groups of people uh, uh, and, and, and to avoid this sort of hyper-concentration of, uh, of uh, power that, that we sometimes uh, have uh, today. Can I ask you two questions? One on wealth. You talk a lot about the role of wealth, both wealth taxation and the importance of transferring wealth to the next generation rather than income. That's a, that's a huge theme in, in this book. Can you describe a little bit more about how you would see that working? What would that, particularly the wealth transfer bit to the next generation? Well, you know, I, I think that, you know, income redistribution is very, is very important. And I talk about the book, about salary scale, about uh, uh, universal basic income, and that's very important. But I think it's not enough because wealth and, you know, property ownership is what gives you the possibility, you know, to pr project yourself in the future, to make it sometime to start a company, but also to be in a, 
negotiating situation that is not the same. You know, if you can uh, own your uh, your apartment, or maybe not in uh, London, but in, you know, there are <laughs> other cities in in Britain or in France or where it's much cheaper to to own a, an apartment. Uh, then you are in a different situation that you know if you need to pay your rent month after month and you need to sell your labor at uh, you know whatever uh, price you need to sell it because because that's that you have no other choice because you need to pay your rent so being being you know having some property rather than no property at all makes a big difference for the general structure of, of power in society and bargaining power in society so these are consequences for uh, wage negotiation for uh, business creation you know it's it's uh, it, it has huge consequences so the way you know if you look at to, today's situation So I don't know if this is visible, but this is the distribution of wealth in a country like France, but the numbers will be very close in Britain. So average, uh, average wealth today in France or in Britain is about uh, 200,000 euros per adult. Uh, the median wealth will be closer to 100,000 per adult. You know, the, the top of the distribution is taking the the mean to, uh, to higher levels, but the median is only 100,000. Now, the bottom 50% <laughs> owns virtually nothing. You know, I said earlier, you know, it's less than, uh, it's around 5% of total wealth owned by the bottom 50%, which means that they have, uh, on average, uh, one-tenth of average wealth. You know, they have 50% of the population, 5% of total wealth, so they have, said, about 20,000 euros instead of 200 for the average. So they own very little, and this is true within all age groups, you know, I should say. It's not that the young are poor and are about to become rich. You know, if you, well, some of them are about to become rich, but I'm sorry to tell you that on average, you know, the, the concentration of wealth is just as large uh, within, you know, the 20 to 35, the 35 to 50, the over 65, you know, within each age group, the bottom 50% has always, you know, less than 10% of total wealth. Uh, so, The, the, you know, one of the solutions I describe in my in my book is this idea of uh, an inheritance uh, for all. So here's a, you know one concrete proposal. You know, I put numbers. I say, okay, with the kind of progressive tax on inheritance and wealth that I that I describe in the book, you could pay for an inheritance for all of uh, you know 120,000 euros at age 25. So there's been other proposals that have been made <laughs> in the past. You know, Thomas Paine, you know, in the 18th century already, you know, Thomas Paine was an Anglo-American, uh, uh, you know, uh, revolutionary uh, uh, militant and advocate in the late 18th century, both in France and in the U.S. Revolution. And he had this proposal of using a progressive uh, tax on inheritance to pay for a universal capital endowment, in particular in terms of access to land property. Uh, Tony Atkinson, you know, much more recently has made the proposal to use uh, inheritance tax revenue to pay um, uh, uh, and, and, uh, capital endowment. So here the novelty is to push this idea much further by using also the proceeds from the annual tax on wealth uh, to, to finance this, which allows you to reach much more significant uh, uh, level. You know, you can go in this direction uh, gradually, you can think about it, but, you know, I think this, this is really necessary if you want to change uh, the structure of, of, uh, of power in society. Now, you know, in France, you know, I had a lot of reaction by the, uh, in particular by the, the business media or the, you know, the uh, newspaper very close to the business world who, who basically said, I mean, you know, they pretend to be in favor of economic liberalism, but, but then, 
when they saw this proposal, they said, but you know, this 120,000 euros to all these poor kids uh, uh, of children of the middle class and, and, and lower class, you know, what are they going to do with this money? You know, is it, uh, you know, is that, you know, that's going to reduce their work incentives and, you know, may, maybe, maybe we should put limit on what they will do with this money. And, uh, but these are the same people who have, you know, no problem that some people uh, inherit, uh, you know, 1 million or 10 million. And, and here, you know, there is no need to put limits on what they're going to do. And as everybody knows, you know, they will always do very uh, smart uh, choices. So I think, you know, sometimes the ideology of economic uh, liberalism is, is, is actually used, you know, to, to, to defend, uh, you know, the liberty of, uh, you know, small elite group rather than the, the liberty of, uh, of all. Let, you know, let me say, you know, the proposal that is being made here, I think, is not radical at all. Just to give you numbers, uh, so the people who were about to receive zero or 10,000 euros, which is basically half of the population, or even the bottom two-thirds of the population are about to receive zero. Here, they, are, they will receive 120,000. People who were about to receive 1 million euros, in the system I described, they will still receive 620,000. So, you know, there's still a huge gap between getting 120 or 620,000. And if you want my opinion, you know, you could go further than this. But, uh, you know, I, I think it's... Uh, if you, if you don't address and tackle this issue of access to property uh, and, and inheritance for all, uh, uh, you know, I, I think you will really miss something. Last point, uh, you know, there's an issue which is to, to, uh, to make uh, property uh, uh, accessible at a younger age, which is very important. You know? So even in a completely egalitarian society in terms of parental wealth, you may want to socialize uh, inheritance so that people receive it at age 25 rather than 50. Um, I think you're talking to a very persuaded audience. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Let's right. open it up. I'll take the woman in the back, yeah. the gentleman here, and the woman up there. Uh, yeah, I'm Luna I'm from Denmark, and I study environmental policy and regulation. I think it was very interesting you show with the... Um, with the left or the highly educated people tend to stand to uh, vote more more leftist. Um, mm -hmm. What is your take on this? Is this just the social democratic parties that just um, left all the voters, or like their their uh, like old historical electorate, or what happened and what should be done? So the Brahmin left problem. Uh, yeah. Gentlemen here. Hi, um, my name is Manuel. I'm from Chile. And I would like to hear your opinion about what's happening right now in Chile. As you know, I know you met some of our current opposition leaders and you're pretty aware of what's happening in Chile. We are going through one of the biggest crises in the last 40 years in our country and inequality is in the core uh, of, this, of this upheaval. Um, and last week we started discussing about putting limits to inheritance in Chile. And as you know, the, one per the richest percent in Chile holds the 25% or even more of the country's wealth. And how do you think uh, putting limits on inheritance can uh, benefit Chile and make, him, make it a more equal country? Okay, and the woman in the back. Hi, thanks for your talk. Um, you evoked the climate crisis in your plea for equitable growth. Um, but my question to you is, no matter how equitably distributed 3% exponential growth is, is it compatible with planetary boundaries? Can we entertain that question? And then can I flip it and ask you, do you think that steady state economics or degrowth might actually serve to 
concentrate people's focus on equality of distribution. Okay. Uh, easy questions. Yeah, sure. So let, let me start with the Brahmin left questions. You know, so, so was the question, you know, why is it that social democratic uh, parties, you know, which used to attract, uh, uh, you know, the lower education uh, uh, groups have, have become, uh, you know, the, sort of the parties of the most highly educated over time? First of all, you know, I should make clear that, you know, I don't claim I have the complete answer to this question. Okay, so, so what I do, you know, in this book is first to provide evidence for this change. And, 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 you know, I, I should say also that we are, you know, this is a new sort of comparative uh, uh, project where we are uh, actually, we, we are going to write a, a book with, a, a, you know, several dozen chapters with country chapters looking at the separate countries. So here in, in this book, Capital Ideology, you know, I show the example of US, France, Britain. I show some results for uh, Germany, Sweden, Norway, Italy, a couple of countries, but it's, I just summarize some of the main findings and we're still working on more countries and comparing different countries, you know, of course, can be a way to better understand what's going on. Already, you know, what's striking is the similarities of the evolution across all these countries. And I think it's important because, you know, in the U.S., for a long time, the story has been, you know, the number of people in the, in the U.S. have said, okay, what happened is following the civil rights movement and following the fact that the Democratic Party uh, took the cause of uh, uh, desegregation in the 60s, they've started to lose some of the, uh, uh, you know, low education, uh, white voters who didn't like uh, racial equality too much and started to turn to the Republican Party, to Nixon, then Reagan, and then finally Trump. And, you know, this has been a gradual process process and somehow, you know, the D Democratic Party is not really uh, uh, responsible for this. You know, it says uh, sort of these uh, poor white voters, you know, uh, are so, uh, you know, racist in a way, you know, there's not much we can, uh, we could do. We do the, everything we could to keep them, but, you know, so the, here the story will be something like, you know, the, the left has been abandoned by the poor voters more than the, by the, the, the opposite. Now, I think the problem with this story is that, you know, as you can see, you have a pretty similar evolution in in France, in Britain, in other European countries where you don't have the civil rights movement in the 60s. So you could say that, you know, the conflict about migration that becomes more and more salient in Europe has played a similar role, except that it comes much later. You know, it becomes really salient more in the 80s, 90s, 2000. And even in countries where it never really became so salient, you have a similar evolution. So what I'm trying to suggest in the, in the book is that I think it has more to do with the transformation of the policy package and the policy platform and in the end, the lack of redistributive ambition from the social democratic parties, in particular in terms of education policy. So, you know, I think in the, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, there was a relatively egalitarian educational platform of investing in uh, you know, primary and then secondary education for all and to bring everyone to the end of secondary school. And, you know, gradually in the 80s, 90s, 90s, with the rise of higher education, uh, somehow the, the very, uh, you know, egalitarian platform has been abandoned in some cases for, uh, you know, very, uh, uh, you know, a lot of hypocrisy in terms of access to universities. So, you know, I show in the book, you know, if you look in... 
you know, in a country like the US, you know, this is the relation between parental income and access to higher education. You know, this is data <laughs> that was compiled by, by, uh, by uh, Emmanuel Saez and Rash Shetty, you know, which I, I did not have this kind of data at the time of my previous books. You know, this was not available. And, and now we are able uh, to match, uh, you know, the parental uh, income tax return with the social security numbers of the students so that we can draw this kind of graph. And as you can see, you get almost the 45 uh, degree line, you know, uh, uh, you know, not quite, you know, when your parents are poor, you still have a 25% chance to get it to higher education. And when your parents are rich, you only have a 95% chance. But, <laughs> and in fact, this is, this is minimizing inequality of opportunity because, of course, the universities you have access to right there are not the same as those you have access to uh, down there. So, so, you know, and, and in fact, if you look at the, the amount of educational investment, so the money spent, uh, in fact, you find that even in a, in a supposedly more egalitarian public system like France, so this is, you know, the concentration of educational investment in France. So this is a different kind of representation. Here I, I look at all students, you know, who, who, uh, uh, who basically finished their, uh, their, uh, their, uh, their learning in, in, in 2018. And I look at the total public educational investment they received throughout their, their uh, educational path, you know, from primary school, secondary school, and tertiary education. So on average, uh, average public educational investment, you know, has been uh, about 120,000 euros, but it goes from 60, 70,000 euros to 250, 300. So these are the people who basically leave school at the age of 17 or 18. These are the people who go for, uh, 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 you know, very privileged uh, higher education, uh, typically the, the French system of uh, grande école is sort of investing a lot more money on a small minority of students. And in the middle, you have people who are more in the sort of basic uh, university system and don't get much investment. So in the end, you see, you know, how much hypocrisy there is in this system because you sort of invest 200,000 uh, more euros uh, for, you know, people at the top than at the bottom. So, of course, the, here, this is not parental income. These are just the people who do the most uh, expensive study. And some of them sometimes come from lower income backgrounds. But as you know, on average, you know, there is a correlation, of course, with parental income. So that in the end, public investment will tend to amplify uh, initial inequalities. And, you know, I was talking about inheritance for all uh, before. I mean, here you have sort of double inheritance uh, for, for some people who get 200,000 euros. So I think, you know, social democratic parties were sort of unable or unwilling to try to, to, to propose some target in terms of educational justice uh, that were convincing enough. And, and you know, they, they just didn't... You know, it's, it's more complicated to define educational justice in an era of higher education than in an era where the objective was just to bring everybody to the end of primary and then secondary education. So it's not, you know, it's not that the world did not change and the Social Democratic Party just abandoned redistribution. The world changed. There were new challenges and Social Democratic parties, you know, were sort of not able or unwilling to update their, their, their platform. At least this is the story I tell. Then it's not only about education; it's also about uh, you know redistribution in general, progressive taxation, uh, you know uh, financial deregulation. You know there are many other uh, uh, topics to mention. 
I cannot possibly be uh, so long for all questions because we will not have enough time. <laughs> but let me say, so what happened in Chile, you know, uh, regard, you know, recently, in recent months regarding uh, the demonstration and protest against inequality and the demand for more uh, economic justice, I, you know, I think is very important because it shows that in many ways, you know, we are in a, at a turning point in the history of globalization. And you can see in many countries in Chile, but also in, in Lebanon. And, you, you know, you could see it in France with the Yellow Vest movement uh, uh, last year. You have a, a demand for more economic justice. And, you know, you have the feeling that the, the economic system is, is working uh, Uh, you know, in a biased manner toward the highest uh, income and wealth group. And in the case of Chile, this is pretty clear uh, to me. You know, you mentioned uh, taxation of inheritance and, and taxation of wealth. Clearly, Latin America and, and in particular Chile, or also Brazil, uh, you know, have, have, you know, some of the most unequal countries in the world. And in the case of Chile, as you know better than me, uh, you know, the post-Pinochet uh, uh, transition, you know, never uh, question, you know, some of the The, including the constitutional basis for, uh, you know, very large inequality uh, in, in, uh, in terms of wealth, in terms of uh, education uh, system, and in particular the uh, private, uh, uh, you know, the prevalence of private uh, education, including in primary uh, primary school with uh, for-profit education uh, schools in, in some cases. And, and so here there was a you know, an ideology of, uh, of, um, of inequality, which, you know, some, uh, you know, some, some famous uh, <coughs> uh, economists and philosophers like, uh, you know, Hayek contributed to this, uh, to this uh, legacy. Uh, uh, but, uh, uh, you know, I, I, yeah, I think this has to change. And I think, you know, this political mobilization will contribute uh, uh, to, this, uh, to, this, to this kind of change. La la last question about uh, uh, climate and growth and, you know, can we continue to have 3% growth or positive growth forever and solve the climate crisis? And, uh, you know, the answer is no. I think we have to rethink uh, uh, the notion of, of economic progress and we have to change Uh, the economic indicators that we use, you know, to measure the notion of economic progress and the notion of economic growth. So there are different ways to, to do that. One way I, I, I should mention is that I, I always try to use the notion of national income rather than GDP. So as you know, there are two differences. You know, national income is GDP minus capital income going abroad or, and minus consumption of fixed capital, which in principle should include the consumption of natural capital. So, you know, if you take 100 billion euros uh, in uh, oil reserves uh, from the underground, or if you take 100 billion euros in fish from the ocean, you know, you have 100 billion euros of GDP, but you have zero euro of national income because you have just reduced your, your, your capital stock by the same amount. And if in addition, when you burn Uh, you know, the oil of the gas, you create global warming and, and you know, you make the, the life on Earth uh, unbearable. Then if you take into account, you know, you put some price on the, the, the negative impact of these carbon emissions, then you should have negative national income uh, instead of positive GDP. So changing the economic indicator both for companies but also for, uh, for uh, national uh, uh, accounts can completely change the perspective on the same Uh, on, on, you know, the same uh, uh, economic strategy. Now, this is not enough. You know, you also need uh, direct uh, environmental uh, uh, indicators, including carbon emission, which, uh, you know, I have shown you before some data on the distribution of carbon emission or biodiversity. 
But, you know, I think, you know, the pure environmental indicators are not sufficient either because you need some notion, you still need some notion of income or, or wage or wealth in order to build some, uh, some, uh, some norm of uh, social justice about how you're going to distribute the, uh, the, you know, the tax burden and the burden of adjustment with respect to, to uh, environmental uh, uh, policies. So I think you know, it would be a mistake to, 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 you know, to forget about any indicators of uh, income growth or wage growth and, and just have pure environmental indicators. You have to, to combine uh, both uh, in, the, in the future. And you need to emphasize you know, the distribution of these indicators, you know, who suffers from global warming, who receives what income level rather than just looking at the aggregate and the average. And so this is, you know, what we've been doing with the World Inequality Database at the Paris School of Economics. This is, of course, what the International Inequality Institute has been doing here at, uh, at LSE. And I think, you know, it's, it's great that, you know, there's more work in the social sciences, uh, you know, not only uh, in economics, but in all other departments who are, uh, you know, interested in uh, the evolution of inequality and sometimes take a more uh, pragmatic approach to the study of inequalities and my dear uh, colleagues uh, in uh, economics department. But, you know, we, we, need, we need everybody, you know, to participate to this renewal of uh, inequality studies in the social sciences. So thanks a lot for your attention. Thank you. Thomas, I think we could go all night, but I'm reassuring you that we will not do that. Thank you all for coming. I think you've given us, as always, a way to completely think differently about inequality. There are copies of Thomas's book outside for those who are interested, and he will remain here on stage and sign them for you if you would like. Uh, so thank you all for coming.